Thanks for pressing play. Most businesses are now, and certainly will be in the future, analog and digital. The question is, how do we get the mix right? And how do we know what and when to digitally transform versus what to create from the ground up as whole new digital offerings and categories? And what, if any, analog things maybe we should leave alone in the analog, a.k.a. physical world? These are among the most strategic questions that boards, CEOs, and executive teams all around the world are grappling with today. Our guest, venture capitalist and Stanford lecturer Robert Siegel, uh, has a new book out. It's called The Brains and Brawn Company, and uh, it cracks open many of these kinds of questions and provides real research and insight from leading companies like Target, Charles Schwab, Kaiser Permanente, uh, and many others, coupled with Robert's years in Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial world. It's a great new book, and we dig into all of it including a playful debate about native digitals and native analogs, as well as what comes first, the analog or the digital. Also, pay special attention to Robert's thoughts on ageism in Silicon Valley. If you are building companies today, or you want to build a legendary company heading into the future, I think you're going to love everything about this real different dialogue. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, man, am I ever stoked you're here. Our friends at Oracle NetSuite are the world's number one cloud business system for your growing business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Malibu Mill, are the category queens of whole plant organic flax milk. And as you probably know, flax is a legendary superfood. And Malibu milk tastes awesome. It's the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. Go to MalibuMilk.com today, milk spelt with a Y, and on checkout, type in different 15 for your 15% discount. That's MalibuMilk.com with a Y, different 15 on checkout. Also, go to uh, Category Pirates and check out our newsletter. You guessed it, Category Pirates. It's the authority on category design, and it's kind of like um, the Harvard Business Review if it was written for and by pirates. Um, recent letters include things like no ocean strategy as opposed to blue ocean strategy, the big brand lie, the power of a point of view, and how to have a legendary career, and much more. Check out Category Pirates today. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Robert, it sure is great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm curious. There's a lot. Uh, you start your book off by talking about digital transformation. And I've been thinking a lot about that phrase lately. And you sort of, uh, is it fair to say you poo-poo it up front a little bit? I think that poo-pooing might be too strong of an expression. I think it's become... What's gentler than poo-poo? <laughs> I think I, I, I try to take a little bit of air out of it. I think it's become this catch-all phrase that has become something that, that consultants use to try to get large organizations to use newer versions of technology and new ways of doing things. And I think that what I've learned in, in my time as a venture capitalist and also in, in the teaching that I do at Stanford is that digital transformation is kind of necessary, but not sufficient. That the world that we're living in 
is increasingly a blend of digital and physical. And so if you only talk about digital transformation, everything talks about the ones and the zeros. Everyone talks about software and connectivity, but people forget we actually live in a physical world. And so I just think that, that when everyone goes on and on about digital transformation, they forget that we're humans and we actually live in three dimensions and not two. Um, which is why I find your book so interesting. Uh, so first of all, thank you for writing your book. Second of all, I'm not sure I agree with all of it, but I'm not 100% sure I disagree with parts of it, <laughs> but I am curious to get into it with you. And so how would you, how would you sort of summarize the central ideas of uh, what a brain and brawn company is? A brain and brawn company is one that has competencies in things that we might normally think of as the digital areas or the brainy aspects. So you know how to use analytics. Um, you're creative. You actually know how to think about what you're going to do internally and where you're going to partner. You'll, you'll understand that, you know, in part of our brain, empathy comes out of part of our brain. So that's actually part of what we do, but there's also a physical side to what people do. And so, you know, I'd say brawny companies are also good at logistics. They're good at manufacturing. They're good at understanding how to operate globally and at scale and how to be, you know, in different parts of the world at the same time and know how to operate effectively there. And so of the companies that we've studied, we found, you know, the ones that only kind of said, hey, we're just going to have a digital software platform and that's it. We don't ever really want to touch people because people are dirty and messy and that's just not what we do. Those companies aren't going to be successful as we get into a world where things are increasingly blended between digital and physical and every product and service that we make is connected and every industry is going to be impacted from not only things like mobility, but healthcare, financial services, uh, there really is education. There isn't an industry that won't be impacted by this blend of digital and physical. Yes. So, uh, of course, Robert, there are businesses that can be 100% digital and maybe, quote unquote, should be. Um, but as you suggest, the vast majority of businesses have a digital component and an analog component. And of course, there's a lot of businesses that have been around for many generations, hundreds, uh, over a hundred years in some cases that of course started off as analog or digital or, uh, physical businesses, which have adopted a digital component. And so one of the things I, I like about your work here is you're sort of giving us a framework and giving us, provoking us to think about, as I think about my business 10, 20, 30 years out, um, what is the right mix of analog and digital? And so, you know, let's say I was um, an entrepreneur and I was building a new business that had components of both. How would you want me to think about building a business that is by definition both? Well, let's look at a retail business where you're going to have not only shopping that's going to happen in the front end, but you're going to have to be thinking through, you know, supply chain, delivery, et cetera. There will be some things that you'll be doing, you know, internally that you'll decide that we want to own this and in some places you'll partner. But if you actually think that delivery is a great thing, you know, you'll do more what Amazon did. You'll go and hire the best people out of Bentonville who were at Walmart at the time and who were really, really good at logistics. And as I sit here in the center of Silicon Valley, oftentimes there's a, a naivete or an ignorance of, you know, how things actually get from point A to point B. How are things manufactured? How does the supply chain navigate? You know, how does it get, you know, not only into the factory, but out of the factory? And so I would argue that 
if you really want to understand the entire system of how you deliver your product, your good or your service to your customer, you actually need to see the system and you need to understand how it all fits together. And so part of that is you're going to have to hire the competencies in house uh, that are necessary to make that happen. You so many startups that I see in my venture activities, you know, just kind of say, oh, well, we'll, we'll contract manufacturing out, we'll handle logistics out, but they don't really understand what's involved in that kind of whole customer delivery experience because the customer experience is going to be based upon not only what they do the shopping online, but the experience they get is the product delivered on time, is it delivered well? And so, so I would argue that those competencies need to exist inside of a digital native company if they're really going to understand what their customers uh, do with their products and how they experience the products. Yes. Interesting. I I find it fascinating that, um, you know, you could argue certainly that Amazon's the most successful um, digital B2C company ever. I think that's hard, hard to dispute. And most people forget about 1.5 million people work there. There's a lot of people doing shit for a company that's digital. And most of those people are in factories and delivery. That's not the people who are slinging code. It's not the people who are designing our Echo, you know, and and, and working on Alexa. You know, the the volume of, of, of employees are doing that bridge between the digital and the physical. The, the, the digital from where we generally place our orders to the physical of however we consume the goods and services that we get from Amazon. And, and that's actually going to be a, a key and important attribute for, I think, companies going forward. Uh, and, and I think companies need to have those competencies that reside in both the digital and physical. The best companies we studied clearly understood both. Yeah. Now, are you also saying, uh, I can think of some um, uh, B2C startups um, where they are selling a physical product. It's a, it's a consumable good. And yet, as a startup, they've pioneered some new category of this physical good, and they're not doing the traditional distribution where maybe 90 or 100% of their distribution goes through a channel. They're doing a big direct-to-consumer business, and they view the channel, whether it's a grocery store or a Target or whatever the channel is, as an augment or a supplement to a primarily direct business they're building. And so even though their product is a consumable analog product, they've created a completely digital business model where they view the physical uh, distribution, if you want to call it that, as an adjunct, as opposed to what has historically been the case, which is a 180 from that. And so I'm curious how you think about that, Robert. Well, let's say two examples that come to mind. Let's look at any kind of wearable. So if you've got a Fitbit or a smartwatch, it's a physical good, but the real value of that product becomes the information that goes back and forth between the individual uh, and the company that's providing the service. And you're going to be able to then use wearables for things like healthcare, um, you know, improving our sleep, et cetera, et cetera, and making sure that we're measuring our health, maybe even our, our caloric intake. And so that's an example where digital and physical are blended together. And it might have started with a physical product that a consumer bought, but it's actually the digital relationship that has increasing value over time. And you can't have just the digital because the physical's got, you've got to deliver the sensors, if you will, that interact with the consumer that give the consumers the value. We can even look at a company like Tesla, which is completely redesigned and reimagined what the automobile experience is like. You know, your car, when you come home, connects to your Wi-Fi network uh, and all of the data about how your car performed gets uploaded to Tesla every evening. Uh, they were able to use that, if you remember when the Model 3 launched, to fix a braking problem where they could actually download new software 
to to you know fix a and improve a what was potentially a safety issue. You see it in how they download new features and new capabilities. You start your car one morning and there's new competencies inside of the car that weren't there the night before. And so that blend of digital and physical, I just we just gave an example of healthcare and mobility. That's what we're going to see over and over and over again. And you, when you whether you think about a company like Fitbit or a company like Tesla, you have to have competencies of both to deliver a great consumer experience and to know how to make sure that the consumers like what they're getting, are having their needs met, and that you can have that ongoing relationship with the customer. Yes. Now, I'm curious about a mindset here. So if you take that term digital transformation and you take a step back, and if you believe what I believe, which is that words matter, and if you believe what I believe, which is languaging matters, which is the strategic use of language to change thinking, and if you believe what I believe, um, I believe that a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point in action and therefore outcome. So with all that said, lecturer, I guess not professor, <laughs> although I kind of want to call you professor, but what the fuck? <laughs> it's, a t- it's a title I haven't earned. <laughs> if I was a Stanford professor, if I was a Stanford lecturer, I'd just tell people to call me professor and call it even, but that's me. Um, so... Here's here, here's sort of the um, aha, and you kind of said it here, which is um, where's the value? Is the value the, the physical analog experience of the Tesla or is it the data and information about the Tesla? The answer is both. And I think that's where I would push back on what you said. You know, you, you talked about digital transformation, and I totally agree with you on language. Like language becomes a way that we control things, message things and try to get our points across. Digital transformation historically has meant digitizing analog processes that have often been used for cost efficiencies, like taking costs out of a system. And very rarely has it meant about how do you improve the customer experience. And so I think that what's, you kept talking about demarcation, I actually see it much more as a blending. And so like Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, talks about the power of AND. And, and, you know, he says that there's no such thing as e-commerce. There's just commerce. And commerce is sometimes physical and sometimes digital. And so one of the things that, that, that we talk about in, the, in Brains and Brawn is this notion of systems leadership. It's this idea that great leaders going forward will see systems. They will understand physical and digital. They will understand how things interact with each other, be they functions inside of an organization or how companies in an ecosystem interact with each other and who provides influence on each other and how things change. And so I think that what we're moving into a world where this this world of hard demarcations and hard modularity is actually now in a world where things are far more interdependent, especially right now, as every product is being connected and new ways of using these products are happening. And so I think what we're going through is a time when people need to understand the best of both digital and physical. And this idea that, that the physical is old world and it's dinosaurs and it's going to die and digital is going to take over, I just don't buy that. I think that you're going to ha- actually the digital people as they move into physical worlds are going to have to understand the competencies that are required in the physical world. And the physical, the people who have physical DNAs, the incumbents oftentimes are going to have to figure out how to embrace and, and integrate digital technologies and to have better relationships with their customers on an ongoing basis. So uh, in general, I agree with you. That said, I think um, the conversation around languaging and the conversation around what emphasis on the right syllable So when we say digital transformation, it speaks to a context of there's an analog or physical thing or business process or just call it a thing. And we are going to transform it digitally. And when we say that, um, 
we essentially are saying, whether we realize it or not, we're going to take something the way it is, and we're going to improve it using digital technology. That is the undeclared, unspoken, undiscussed uh, context for a conversation when we use the phrase digital transformation. I see you nodding your head, but I want to hear your reaction. Well, I think that that's absolutely true. That's conventional wisdom. Um, but we also, I think, need to acknowledge that analog is sometimes better than digital. And so Young Son, the former president of Samsung Electronics, would you know he was with us and he talked about how in music, for example, like, you know, an, a, a violin can be recreated digitally, but the sound in analog of a violin can be infinitely more beautiful. There are some who have argued in the music industry that when we moved away from records to CDs, uh, we lost some of the richness of music. And so not everything should be digitized, even if it can be digitized. You know, you and I are physical creatures, right? And And the world in which we live, the ability to you know, hold hands with your spouse and your partner, the ability to do those things. There are parts of the physical world that actually should not be replicated digitally because they're not as good. You know, in the context of business, we have to make sure that people will understand that we, people will be interacting with the goods and services that we make and the physical side will be a part of that. So here's where maybe you and I start to differ. You and I are the same vintage. And that means that we are native analogs. We grew up in a world where our real experience was an analog physical experience. And as the, if you will, digital world emerged, that became an adjunct, a sidecar to our life experience, our work experience, et cetera. Now, you and I are guys that live in Silicon Valley and work in the technology industry. And so I'm guessing, Robert, you like me have a very rich um, digital life. But at the end of the day, what you just said is exactly how I feel, which is if I'm going to hold my wife's hand, I want to do it walking on the beach, not as a fucking avatar somewhere. Right. So I agree with you, but there are now 140 million in the United States native digitals. And the aha for me about these folks is they are not just generationally different in the way that generations are always different. They are a whole new category of human being where they are literally 180 degrees from native analogs in that their digital life is their primary life and their analog life is an adjunct or a sidecar to their digital life. And so if you're a native digital, the idea of owning a Picasso is pure stupidity because why would you want a physical thing? But the idea of owning an NFT makes all the sense in the world to you. And so we know for a fact that there are 140 million Americans for whom analog stuff has very little value and they will spend time, money, and energy on their digital lives. And the degree to which they want their analog life to be valuable is in many ways the degree to which it's connected to their digital life. And so my concern about the framing that you just gave was it can comfort native analogs into thinking that their point of view, that there are certain things that are, that are not good to be digitized. I'm not sure that more than half the American population would uh, agree with them. I, I don't think they would. 
Uh, I think you're wrong, Chris. Sorry, I just got to call bullshit on you because that basically you framed it as the Luddites versus the future. That guys like you should just, we should just go ahead and go ahead and die already because we're old and we don't matter and the future generation is doing things. But Andy Grove taught us when I was at Intel that every generation thinks they discovered sex. And I got to tell you, that's not true. In fact, you know, in fact, the corollary of that is if your grandparents weren't kinky, you wouldn't be here. And the same thing is true for our children. And so, you know, this is not a question of Luddite versus the future. This is a question of the this children will have a way that they will expect to communicate with each other. That'll be different than how you and I communicated with people when we were their age. They will have different ways of interacting with companies, right? And they will expect to communicate differently with them. But, you know, my son's a musician, does a lot of it actually all digitally, but he still likes to perform in person. And so he still actually likes to go to concerts and host concerts and perform with people. And so the physical world doesn't go away. Now, how they blend digital and physical will be very different than when I saw the clash play. And I say that given the, 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 what's behind you, when I saw the clash in the Los Angeles Coliseum in 1981, I couldn't stream what I was seeing on my smartphone because smartphones didn't exist. And so what, but what that experience is, and that was as 100,000 people listening to the Clash play is still kind of that social thing that we as a species still do. But how we'll experience that socialness will have a digital overlay blended upon it. So I think that the, what I would disagree with is while they may start as digital natives and the like, their physical world's not going to go away. They're just going to be doing things differently. And I think uh, when we have a go forward, it's not about kind of like the the dinosaurs versus the people who are going to take over. The question is, how will the world blend both of those things together? Because as humans, even the younger generations, you talked about holding hands with your wife on a beach. The younger generation likes to do that, too. They just might meet on Tinder. Yeah. So I think precision here matters. So I think this is what we're arguing about, because I want to make sure we're arguing about the right thing. I'm not saying human beings will cease to enjoy physical things. What I'm saying is the value of physical things is decreasing. That's the first thing I'm saying and will continue to decrease. The value of physical sex is decreasing. So people don't necessarily need to get together to do certain things they used to have to get together to do. So that's the first piece, the physical experience And the goods and services that exist in the analog world will continue to devalue. Grandma's prized Tiffany lamp is worthless to the granddaughter today. Um, And that's going to continue. Then in second, uh, Robert, you said there's a digital overlay to the analog experience. And this is probably the single biggest part I'm pushing you on, which is that with all due respect, as one myself, is a native analog saying that. And what I'm saying to you is, I think native digitals, the degree to which they are going to value analog and physical experiences, they will think of those analog experiences as an analog overlay to their digital life. And that's the the argument that I think I'm having with you. All right. And I think you're right. The, the precision uh, words, the right one to, for us to focus in on and overlay may in fact be the right answer. And, but where I think we would disagree is I don't think it's going to be, there's an analog overlay or a digital overlay, I guess, to, to be more specific, I would say there's going to be a digital and physical integration. And you're arguing then to your first point that the economic rents are going to collect 
to the digital as opposed to the physical. And I think there's truth in that, right? We're seeing that today that if you look at the economic value of the digital corporations, it dwarfs the analog corporations. But I think as even the analog, the digital corporations move into the analog space, they're going to have to figure out the skill sets and competencies that were built up in the analog world. And, and, and as an example, you remember before the pandemic, we used to fly on airplanes, right? When you flew on an airplane, you were really happy that that engine was not built using Agile and Scrum. <laughs> You're really happy that it was done using Six Sigma and Waterfalls. And there's a reason for those competencies. And as those devices become increasingly connected and as, you know, as, as digital native people, digital native companies move into the physical world, they will need to understand laws of physics, laws of nature, and the, the domain knowledge that we have built over hundreds of years as to what makes the physical world work. Am I going to argue with you that the economic value won't necessarily shift to the digital world? No, I think you're right on that one. And, you know, we're seeing that in, in you know, companies of how they're valued today. I, I further think the value, so the economic value to the provider, to the company, to the entrepreneur will be in the digital. So if, if you remember the old expression, um, you know, we give away the razor to sell the blades. I think the future will be we give away the analog to make money on the digital, right? Um, so I think I think that's right. But I'm also saying something in addition to that. And I'll give you an example. So recently I bought a new specialized e-mountain bike. It's unbelievable, this thing. And it is a digitized mountain bike in insofar as it doesn't have wires. When you pull the brake, it Bluetooth stops the bike, which is fucking terrifying because I can't figure out how to make Bluetooth work with the speaker in my you know studio, but that's a whole other conversation. So the bike itself is digitally transformed. It's a digital product. And I think digital transformation is the right way to think about it. They clearly at Specialized asked a question, how do we use modern technology to transform what this bike is? And, and the end part gets really important. It's, of course, the bike is connected to the internet and they have an app and you track everything about your ride and your heart rate and your calories burned and, of course, where you went and your elevation change and your speed and your top speed and your average speed and blah, 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 blah. There's all this data about the ride. Here's where I think it gets really different. For you and I as native analogs, when we go on a bike ride, 95% of the joy is called being on the ride. And now the good folks at Specialized have added a 5% digital bump so that when I get home, my wife says, oh, did you have a good ride with your buddy? And I said, oh, yeah, we had a great ride. And she says, oh, show me. And that's this is literally what happens in my house. And I can show her and we relive the ride and that's kind of fun. And then I have some data over time and I can look at it to see am I improving or whatever. And there's some value in that. However, that said, I think if you're a native digital it's the inverse. 95% of the value is in the data during the ride and after the ride. Your, the joy experience you get is the primarily digital one. And the secondary one is you feel good about exercising your body. And so if you're native digital, the data and the digital experience associated with the bike ride is more valuable to you than the physical. That's the argument I think I'm having. And so in that sense, the real product is the digital product, not the physical product. 
okay, you might be right, but, and I think, let me see if I can expand on where we might both agree and disagree. The decision, you, you talk about software wrapped in hardware, right? That notion that basically the, the hardware is a delivery vehicle for the software. Um, and software, I'm gonna, I agree right now, is the key because that's how you have the ongoing communication. That's how data gets consumed, shared, and the like. And that allows also the ongoing relationship between the company and the customer and also between customers and other customers. That's how they build their connections and connectivity. But I'm going to argue two things. And again, this might be just where we disagree. I think if the bike is a shitty riding experience, eventually people won't go outside and ride the bike. And so I, I would posit that if somebody's going to start with a digital foundation and a digital DNA, if if part of the experience is you need to still build a decent bike so you can have a good bike riding experience, you better understand what's involved in making a good bike. Um, because by the way, if your Bluetooth brakes fail uh, and you like, you know, hurt yourself and break a limb, you are not going to want to go back out on the bike. The second thing is, you know, you, I, I would argue that what you're describing can almost lead to a dystopian future that I don't believe exists. If you remember the Pixar movie WALL-E, where you've got the humans who are up in space who are fat because they can't do anything and can't move around anymore and the, and the machines are running anything. You know, I just don't believe that as a species, we're going to devolve into uh, people who don't want to have physical experiences. And I think, by the way, the pandemic has kind of shown us this. And you see, you know, the push for companies to get back you know, and be in person. Hopefully we'll get past the Delta variant soon. But yeah, I was in Europe last month for a set of meetings for four days, and it was the first time I had been in a room with people for four consecutive days of business meetings. And the quality of the meetings was an order of magnitude better than doing it on Zoom. Like it was like, an, and all of us at the end of the four days were like, holy crap, we covered a lot of ground and got a lot done. And so I, I, I think there will end up being more integration. I'm with you, but I just don't believe we kind of go to this future where everybody sits in their rooms alone looking at screens. I think you're going to have digital and physical blended together, and it's going to be about and not or. So uh, we agree. Uh, again, I think precision matters. Um, so on your comment about the bike, uh, it turns out you're right. The bike is a fucking legendary bike. And I'm not a connoisseur of mountain bikes. I'm just a weekend warrior type rider. I'm reasonably athletic, but I'm, you know, nobody pays to watch me do anything athletic. But, I, you know, I've owned a number of mountain bikes over the years, and I could tell you, this thing is a fucking, it's like butter. I mean, I could go on for a very long time about why I love the bike of the bike. So I agree with you, you got to have a legendary physical product. And what I'm saying for the native digitals of the world, that that's necessary but not f sufficient, because where they place a disproportionate amount of the value is on the digital. So, so that's the first piece. The second piece is, um, well, 70% of Americans are overweight or obese, so maybe it's already happened. Um, there's a lot of what you're saying about human beings wanting to be physical that I very much agree with. And it's where the value is. So we're moving from sensors, which are part of IoT, the Internet of Things, to now what people are calling IOB, the Internet of Bodies. And that um, we will have sensors that will connect meaningful parts of what our body is up to, to the internet all the time. And it will essentially become self-optimizing um, organisms because the technology will help us do so. So my point is this, that I think if you're under the age of 35 and you're a native digital and you go back to the bike example, that there's, there's very little value in a bike ride without being able to experience data during the ride and certainly after the ride. 
And so where they forget where the money gets made for a second, Robert, where they, uh, from a user experience perspective, place the value is much more tilted to the digital. And so when we say digital transformation, or even when we say there's going to be a hybrid, my fear is the following, that we are going to give native analogs like you and I comfort that assuming that you can take a physical thing and digitize it, you can be successful. When in point of fact, the native digitals think digital from the ground up and use physical as an adjunct where necessary. Well, I, okay, so I agree with you in the sense that I talked about that digitalization and, and digital transformation has often meant cost optimization as opposed to improving the customer experience or changing the customer experience. And so I, I strongly agree with what you said about the new type of experiences that people will have. But again, I teach 500 students every year that are digital natives, right? And I have three kids who are digital natives and watch that experience. And so even if they ascribe the, to, as you said, the, uh, the digital part is where they put the value in, okay, peace. But they're not going to be sitting in their rooms by themselves forever and ever. They're going to actually do both. And I think that's what I'm trying to say in Brains and Broad is that the best companies will do both. Uh, and you're right. A, a, uh, a, an analog, by the way, I've been, you know, playing with computers since I was five. So, you know, when you sit here and call me an analog, you know, an old piece of shit. Okay, fine. M maybe you're a technology savvy old piece of shit. <laughs> okay, fair enough, right? You know, uh, but, you know, when you get to a, a, a world where everything is connected, you know, if somebody just tries to say, okay, I'm going to layer on, give me your email address on this product and, and you don't add new value, but it's connected and you don't change the nature of the experience. You're right. Those companies are going to die anyways. The real test will be when people actually bring in digital plus physical and give a better experience than could be either done either digitally alone or physically alone. Yes. I think we absolutely agree about that. Absolutely. Now you give a number of sort of big ideas in here about sort of how to figure out this blend, this hybrid, this, uh, this, this mixing of the two worlds. So if I was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or maybe if I was a, an entrepreneur and I was in this world where part of what I'm doing is physical and analog, and a, of course, a big part of what I want to do is digital, how would you have me think about the two things and uh, sort of getting the blend, having the right emphasis on the right syllables? Well, the, the first thing I try to do is figure out what exactly does the company need to do to deliver a great experience. And we talked a bit about, you know, some of the, the, the competencies that we highlighted in the book. And so I'd be trying to first and foremost understand what is it that my company is doing well and what is it not doing well in those areas? You know, how are we handling analytics and what's the way in which we use analytics? How are we handling creativity, risk taking, et cetera? How are we dealing with logistics and or not? How are we dealing with, you know, how we're shaping our ecosystem? Um, but then I would also be asking, you know, each individual to be thinking, you know, what are they doing as, as leaders to understand how they're transforming, how they act and behave in a world that's fundamentally different uh, than it was before. Um, you know, the best leaders we studied, you know, people who could you know, use this notion of seeing the interaction between things, seeing, you know, what happens, you know, inside of an organization, they really had several competencies that I thought really kind of made a difference. Um, you know, the first is, you know, they were actually very, very fluent uh, in understanding kind of key technologies that are going to be impacting uh, their company. So artificial intelligence, additive manufacturing, 
automation. These are things that are going to be impacting every organization and every company. And I think it's critical that no matter what role you play in the in your organization, you understand how are those technology trends going to be impacting how you deliver your products. And by the way, what jobs inside of your company are going are going away? And do you really understand kind of those those types of issues? Because no matter where you are inside of the company, you're organization and your job, your function might be impacted by this. The other thing I would say is that, you know, systems leaders are kind of aware you're talking about digital natives. The future of work is going to be a very different world than it was in the past. You know, the types of technologies that are going to be shaping, you know, what functions exist inside of a company and what functions don't um, is going to create opportunities for the labor force and how companies are organized on a global basis. And so I I would argue that leaders need to start thinking differently about how do teams get organized? How are they put together? And how are they going to create opportunities for the people inside of the company to maybe do multiple things at the same time? You've heard the expression of side hustles that a lot of the younger generation wants to be doing multiple things. And a lot of that's based upon these digital natives grew up multitasking simultaneously. How do you create that opportunity inside of an organization such as your employees, well, maybe want to stay because you give them multiple ways for them to be interacting and doing different things that keeps them stimulated and learning, you know, uh, and then also, you know, kind of just being aware of how do you communicate? What's the language you use? The Jeff Immelt, who I co-teach with, talks about truth equals facts plus context, right? And so, you know, facts are facts, but the context is how we understand them. And I found that great leaders, you know, had the ability to kind of describe what's happening in a very complex and rapidly changing world, you know, to their customers, to their employees and to their teammates. And so great leaders, I think were, were good storytellers. And I'd say the last thing that, 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 that I saw that great leaders did is, you know, they were very aware of how they needed to continue to up their game. And if you think about it, when you become more senior inside of an organization, you've been rewarded for doing things a certain way and kind of doing it well over and over again. And when you do it well, you end up getting promoted. But in a world that's changing, you got to figure out how are you going to ensure that you're not ossified. And so uh, Katrina Lake asked our students a question. She she said one of the things she puts to her, you know, um, you know, her direct staff was she asked them every year, if you were hiring for your job today, would you hire yourself? And I think kind of that self-awareness of understanding where you are, you know, if you're keeping fresh or not, if you're on top of the latest things, it's that constant desire to reinvent ourselves that's, you know, increasingly integral. So I think those are the key things that that, that leaders, both in incumbent organizations and disruptive organizations, need to kind of constantly be aware of, of kind of how our technology is going to continue to change their organizations, how it's changing their customers, uh, and then also kind of that self-awareness of how people need to make sure that they're staying fresh and current as to whatever's happening. And so um, if you're a native analog uh, and you're in more senior management and you now understand that uh, more than half the country is native digital, how, how do you stay you know fresh and current so you don't... Uh, ossify or calcify or any other ify so <laughs> a couple of things that, that that i think leaders can do the first is you know we all have biases right bias is a, a word that gets thrown a lot around a lot especially here in silicon valley and we talk about conscious bias and unconscious bias um but you and i are biased not only because of who we are and 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 gender and and race, but we're biased by how we're trained as leaders. So in my venture capital firm, like I was trained as an operator, my one of my partners was trained as a lawyer. We look at opportunities through the filters of our operating experience that we've built over decades. And so 
one of the things that we have to do is be aware of the filters that we use to analyze situations and try to get people around us who can actually give us different perspectives. Uh, one of the things that I try to encourage leaders to do is to get somebody outside of your organization who will give you a perspective on truth. Because especially as you're a senior leader, very often are you wrong when you're in your own conference room. Like when you're in your own conference room, especially the higher you get, everyone will tell you what you want to hear. So I try to find, have people find trusted partners uh, that they can talk to outside of their company who will actually kind of give them truth and give them a perspective on how their company is looked at, how the products are looked at. I think there also has to be a natural curiosity to try to uh, want to change and evolve. You, you know, there, there's two times in life when companies need to change, when they're ahead and when they're behind. <laughs> and so when you're behind, you're doing it because you have to. When you're doing it when you're ahead, you've got to figure everyone's gunning for you. So you kind of almost have to have this mindset of, yeah, it's going really well as a time to blow things up because if it's never going to get better, you know, you know, eventually the good times are not going to last. So I think it's, it's, you have to, you know, my old mentor, Andy Grove at Intel taught us that only the paranoid survived. And so you can take that with a paranoid perspective, but there's also kind of the opportunistic perspective of what greatness can we do next? Because there's new technologies and new capabilities that we couldn't do before. Yes. Now, one of the things you mentioned off the top there, Robert, um, was this idea of uh, systems. Mm -hmm. And I've been obsessed with systems thinking uh, for a long time. And I remember distinctly reading uh, The Fifth Discipline. Um, and so I'm curious, particularly, you know, you talk about the, the rapid change and how ecosystems are changing and there's a lot of fluidity with the digital world and all these things. And so how do we apply systems thinking to this new um, hybrid uh, brawn and brain world? Well, I think one of the advantages of digital is that things are constantly in motion, right? There's, you know, there's bits flowing back and forth between people, between individuals and companies and the like. And so I think imagine that the, the system is constantly your ecosystem, your business, your industry is constantly changing. You can be asking yourself like every 30, 60, 90 days, what did I believe before that's maybe no longer true? You know, can you do things like build an influence map inside of your industry, understanding who's influencing who and why and who has power and why do they have power? You know, I think that there's a getting comfortable with the fluidness uh, of the world that, you know, you talk about native analog and native digital. And perhaps I think for some of the visceral reaction I'm having to that is I think that as soon as one does that, that paints onto um, particular generations, this is exactly how they're going to be. And it's very concrete. And I think things are going to be far more fluid than discrete in the future. And I think that's part of the power of what digital brings to things. And so I think individuals being comfortable with that, you know, we people talk about how change is good and we see to embrace change. Human beings hate change. Like change sucks. Like you finally get comfortable with something and then somebody moved your cheese, you know, the old expression. And so the You've got to though understand that that's how the world's going to continue to be. And so I think kind of knowing how to operate in the world and understanding that things are constantly in flow, I think that's what leaders really need to understand and, and never get comfortable with you know whatever's doing. And you know, Jeff Jordan and I were talking last week, and Jeff made the comment that none of his companies that he's on the board of, you know, at Andreessen Horowitz, none of them do like a three to five year plan the way that used to happen in large companies. How can you do a three to five year plan anymore? So you want to be thinking much more in this context of 6, 12, 18, 24 months at the most outside as to what the world might look like. And then constantly, you know, revisiting your assumptions as to what's your view of the world. I agree with that last part about what you said. I, I want to nudge you on um, people hate change. Nobody wanted an MP3 player. 
Certainly nobody wanted an iPod. Nobody wanted an electric vehicle. Uh, nobody needed a personal computer. Um, and in a, uh, in a customer survey, 10 out of 10 people said they'd never pay for water until Evian came along. And so I think people actually love change. Uh, what they don't like is people not explaining to them why they should move from one paradigm to a new one. But if they get why they should move, they tend to move very quickly. Well, I think one of the challenges Silicon Valley has is we're so hell-bent on explaining to the world this is why you need this, that it creates an unbelievable arrogance, right? You know, of, of oh, this is better for you. Trust us, do it this way. And I, and, and I worry that when we talk about, oh, we, you need to change and here's why you need to change. You, again, I talk about one of the things is empathy. If we don't really understand where our customers are at or where other people are at, how can we actually bring some of those new things forward? Now, I'm not talking about not having progress. Everybody loves progress. Everybody loves better medicine that helps us live longer and live healthier lives. But generally speaking, people get comfortable with the lives that they're in. And the people who, you know, that th you're constantly saying, I want to try something new and try something different. That's actually, I don't think that's the norm of most people. We like what we like and we get comfortable with it. Um, and so oftentimes after the fact, we'll realize that things are better because of the change. But going into the change, I don't think it's not just that somebody needs to explain it to us. We need to experience why it's better. And so perhaps one way to, you know, uh, allow people to get those benefits of what the future can bring is to, to not tell them it's going to be better, but, you know, show them how their lives will be better by allowing them to experience it, allowing people to kind of say, oh, yeah, this actually is better than the way I was doing things before. But I worry when we say, oh, we just need to do a better job of explaining. We need to do a better job of telling people. That plays right into the arrogance of this place in Silicon Valley that I love so much. Well, okay. So let me ask you this question. If I'm an entrepreneur or an executive and I'm, I'm trying to introduce what I believe is an exponential step forward, uh, how should I do it if I'm not going to explain to them why this different uh, makes a big difference? You hopefully put it in the language of here are the benefits that you'll be able to bring, but part of that starts with understanding what are they trying to accomplish, right? So what are your customers trying, why do they buy your product? What's the, the value for it in a B2B or a B2C sense? So it's explaining, but a small part of it, allowing them to experience the benefits from it, I would argue is even more powerful. It's like being from Missouri, don't tell me, show me. You know, and so giving people the ability to experience why something is better is the ability, if you think going back to, you talked about the MP3 player, the ability to have thousands and thousands and thousands of songs in our pocket as we were walking around or exercising. And that mobility was like a fundamentally transformative experience versus what it used to be in the past. Uh, and it wasn't just that somebody told us that this was going to be better. It was like, as soon as you put the headphones on, you were like, oh, that's great. I remember the first time I held an iPad and, and I'm old enough that I remember, you know, the, the original Windows for pen computing, and it was a horrible experience. And within five se seconds of holding the iPad, I knew that all of my preconceived notions of what tablet computing was going to be was wrong because it was anchored and adjusted on what was in the past. And it didn't matter that it was Steve Jobs telling me that tablet computing was going to be great because I had Bill Gates and everybody else before that telling me it was going to be great. But then when I held the iPad, I got it. I understood what it was going to be like to have a rich media experience and not to be tethered to a particular physical location. I could see great video as I was walking around my house. And so I kind of knew. So I think that's kind of much more of, of what I'm trying to kind of uh, uh, encourage us to do is to be you know, more empathetic to our customers, understanding the value they get as to why they buy their products 
and then let them appreciate you know, why the new thing is actually going to uh, meet the needs that they want, whether those needs are understood or not understood. So this is where I think you and I probably differ quite broadly. Um, while I absolutely agree that exponential breakthrough products should deliver an incredible experience, one that when you uh, use that product, you kind of get it. I, I agree with that statement. And that's necessary, but not sufficient. And here's my uh, counter argument. I would posit to you that the uh, most important invention in human history was probably the wheel. And the wheel was originally uh, invented for a use case called pottery. Mm -hmm. And it spun this way. And it took 300 years before somebody opened a bottle of whiskey and a, a bag of Mary Jane and said, you know, if we tilt this thing on the side, maybe we can use it for transportation. And so my point is this idea that all we need to do to, is to build a legendary product and let people use it is one of the biggest machines that I am raging against because without context, it's very hard for most people to just quote, get it. And that context is this thing called the category. And so I think it's a dangerous path to tell entrepreneurs, Hey, build a legendary product, give people a demo of it. Uh, and everything will work. As a matter of fact, fact, I think I can point to a massive amount of history and data that shows that that's exactly what they should not do. I don't know that we disagree, um, because if you look at when the p piano was invented, like Mozart didn't come five days later, right? People had to figure out how to learn and use the tool. And so I, I think that great, you know, leaders are going to be able to see connections. Like you described the story of the wheel. Somebody realized that if we flip the wheel 90 degrees, it would have different uh, ways that we could use the product. I guess what I was pushing back on is I don't think it's just about telling people that something's great. I think it's about letting them experience it. And so they can internalize it and figure out ways that they might be able to use it. And so um, the, the pushback that I was giving is this is when we say to people, oh, you should do something this way. You should use this product because it's better for you. That's just the way it's done, as opposed to putting the invention out in the world and allowing users to discover for themselves new ways that they'll use the product in ways perhaps even the creator didn't even think of. So again, precision matters. I think experimentation is fun. And I think uh, incremental fooling around with stuff is fun. I think that super consumers in a given category, if you, if you give them a new take on that category or something that looks like an innovation to them, um, are going to push it and bring it into interesting places. I think all of that stuff is true. And, um, you know, here's a recent favorite of mine. So if Clubhouse were to walk into your friends at Andreessen Horowitz and speak accurately about the functionality that they deliver, they might say the following. We built a, uh, a webinar hosting platform with no audio and no ability to record or replay. Uh, we're bringing back appointment viewing and the people who are the creators on this platform will have no ability to monetize their creation um, and or the people who attend their webinars. And that's what we're building. They would have gotten thrown out of the building. They, they, they never would have gotten funded. Instead, what they said was, we're a new category of audio experience social network. And Andreessen threw a lot of money at them um, and, and they took off. Now, subsequently, of course, they are crashing. But my point is the following. 
nobody would have paid attention and nobody would have given them a dollar if they had accurately described their functionality. What they did was they put their functionality in a forward-leaning context, what I would call a category design, and that's how the company got to be the company. Uh, when in point of fact, if they had just accurately described their functionality, they wouldn't have gotten out of the gate. Sure. If they described sushi as, as warm, dead fish, nobody would want to eat it. I Actually, I agree with what you said. I think great systems leaders are, are, are good storytellers. Right. And they can own their narrative. Right. They're really good at trying to be able to tell the story. I guess the the perhaps the again, back to your comment on precision. What I was uh, pushing back on is this notion is when somebody says this is what you should do uh, and telling people what they should do versus giving them the vision of what's possible that they can do that will meet their need. If we try to tell our customers, basically, the way you've been doing things before is you know, is stupid and backwards and Luddite like, and you better get with this or, you know, you're going to be left out and left behind or could be considered old because, you know, ageism is the worst possible type of ism inside the Silicon Valley now that nobody will talk about, um, as opposed to sh explaining to people and the possibilities of what might be the way new products and services can be used. Different people will experience goods and services uh, and get different value out of it. And that's actually okay, as opposed to everybody having to do it one way, be it the creator or the marketing leader. Yes. And uh, I didn't say any of those things you just said, by the way, I didn't say that you should go out and market your new innovation and tell your customers they're stupid and they're Luddites. I never said any of that stuff. So you, you may have inferred it from some of my comments, which is fine, but I didn't say those things. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and if you want to, you want to have a conversation about ageism in Silicon Valley? Sure. I'm happy to. Let's do it. All right. What's your point of view on ageism in Silicon Valley, Robert? It's something that no one talks about. You know, it's, it's, or very rarely is it talked about, you know, that, that it, when you and I were growing up back in the day, you looked at it, it, what people had accomplished over time and what they'd done. And now it's become so much more about, you know, are you current and are you relevant? And while I think it's important that people do, do need to stay current and relevant, you know, you see that biases will develop because it's assuming that somebody is a digital native or an analog native, and therefore one can't understand the other. And I just don't buy into that. I think a lot of times we make choices when we let ourselves get trapped into our thinking and we make assumptions about people uh, around age, around where they were born, around, uh, you know, how they dress. And, and age is one of those things where, where um, in the valley, uh, I think you, you, we assume that because somebody gets to a certain point or phase in their life, they're not capable of contributing technically. They're not capable of contributing uh, creatively. And, and it's, it's a really, really sad thing to see. And where, what do you think is the cause of this ageism? I think part of it is we glorify in the narrative of the young entrepreneur who changes the world. And it's kind of, that's what we see on TechCrunch and it's what we read about over and over again. And that's what we celebrate. And, um, you know, we set up, I think, false dichotomies. You know, we, we talked earlier about, you know, Agile and Scrum versus Waterfall. And, you know, Waterfall was the way things were built in Silicon Valley back in the day. And we understand that Agile and Scrum allows us to do things more quickly and move with speed. Very few people understand that Kanban and Agile and Scrum comes from TQM and total quality manufacturing in the 70s from Japan, right? And so that oftentimes that, that um, we set up these kind of easy stories to understand if it's this is better than this and this is bad and this is good and there's this notion of this you know schumpenterian creative destruction that everything that came before us is bad go back to the thing the story we were talking about on analog 
you know, sometimes analog can be actually better than digital and music's a great example of it. And so I think sometimes we need to question our assumptions on, you know, is everything always new better? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Well, of course, everything we value, it, we've been taught to value. And so what's happening here is what happens with every generation, which is what native analogs value and what native digitals value is, uh, in many cases, 180 degree different. I guess the question I'd have for you, and I'm not debating that there isn't ageism on the part of younger people towards older people in Silicon Valley. I wouldn't debate that. I think that that's accurate. The question is why? And the question is, whose responsibility is it to deal with that why? And I think the conversation that really doesn't happen is why native analogs are viewed that way by native digitals. Because if I think if you get this right as a native analog, you're incredibly valuable when you become Obi-Wan Kenobi or when you become Yoda. Um, you're not valuable when you're a dusty old fuck. And so the question, I think, yes. a, a lot of this responsibility, not all, there's some systemic things and et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of this responsibility it is on people of a certain age. Uh, if you're not to the point you made earlier on learning and, and so forth, if you're not, if you're a person of a certain age and you're not on the Obi-Wan Yoda type path, you know, you have depositioned yourself. Fair enough. But again, that goes back to something I, th I said earlier. You, we all have to stay current and we all have to molt our skins on a constant basis. It gets harder to do as we get older. Like my friends who stayed at Intel and Cisco too long generally were not kind of the, the, the people who were able to continue to add value and, and do things on an ongoing basis. And it's uncomfortable. This is why what I was trying to say of a lot of people don't like change. And I think most people don't like change is we get comfortable in things that we know and that we like. And so then when you have to kind of basically jettison those things and try new things, it's a very, very uncomfortable thing to do. You know, the, even the, you know, the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, native analogs value that sentence versus what do native digitals value? I, you know, for sake of discussion, I'm going to take seven and a half billion people in the world and draw a line at 3.75 billion of them and assume the people above the line, half of them are native analog and the other are native digital below the line in terms of age. And just assume that it's evenly distributed, right, on age of, above and below. 3.75 billion people on either side of that line are not all going to have the same things that they value. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have people who are going to be of a certain age who are going to value things differently. And it's going to be the same thing is true, I think, of a younger generation. And so while I do believe that, that there are societal movements and generational movements and, and, and the way that, that people use technology that change with generations, I think we just need to be careful about painting things with a broad and brush stroke. And I see it done way too often. Well, look, there's nuance in everything and detail matters and there are you know, bazillions of subcategories and all of that. Um, and there are megatrends. And we do know that um, in the United States, the half of the new category of human beings who come of age during the smartphone, during mm -hmm. the cloud, their experience of life is completely different. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're seeing it today. You, you can't give your granddaughter your mother's uh, vase because she doesn't want it. It's mm -hmm. junk. Mm -hmm. And to grandma, it was highly valuable. Mm -hmm. And so there is a radical sea change going on that I think is more than just the typical generational shift. It's a shift in perspective around their, uh, what their primary experience of life is. That could also be argued that was true as air travel became more prevalent. 
right? The ability to see other parts of the world became uh, much easier to do. And it was a pretty big thing when most people lived in small towns or small villages, or even in one city, they didn't get to see cities all over the world. Uh, and I think perhaps maybe where we're, you know, um, debating is, I, I actually think as a species, we're constantly evolving and constantly changing it. And what's different now in the blending of digital and physical, I think the speed with which it's going to happen is going to increase. I believe that business leaders are going to have to figure out how they're going to serve their customers better. I totally agree with you. They need to look at how the younger generation, what their expectations are and how they're going to interact with, with, you know, companies on a go forward basis, communication and otherwise. Uh, but I think that, uh, this notion of digital transformation has been overdone as a panacea. Uh, and I think we're going to see a world in a world where, you know, kind of everything's connected. There will be competencies and skill sets in both. I think those are the, the leaders who seem to be the most successful are the ones who seem to be understanding how to, how to blend a world of both digital and physical. I don't think that's constrained by age. I think it's a mindset issue. I, I would agree with all of that. And I guess the, the seminal uh, sort of, line I'm trying to draw is I think there are things that can be digitally transformed. Can we optimize an existing supply chain? Fuck yeah, we can. Right. And should we be doing that? Absolutely. Uh, the breakthroughs we've seen around the vaccine have been extraordinary and the logistics around being able to deploy the vaccine are extraordinary. And anybody who thinks we were not able to do that without information technology has their head on backwards as far as I'm concerned. And so I think those are th those things where we make meaningfully, and I use this word on purpose, better through digital technology, there's real value there. I don't want to be flippant about that. And here's my concern. I think when native analogs hear that, what they misinterpret is uh, Airbnb did not transform the hotel industry and Uber and Lyft did not transform the taxi business. They created a whole new category of digital business. And so that's the aha. And while this is not always true, the vast majority of value as measured by contribution to humanity and as measured by market cap get is accrued to those who create net new value from nothing. And today the companies that are going to create the most value going forward are going to be digital first. They're not transforming the old to become digital, AKA faster horse. They are creating something digital from the start, AKA automobile, uh, AKA uh, Airbnb versus what Hilton's doing to digitize the hotel experience. That's sort of the big, you know, point that I think I'm trying to uh, underscore with you, uh, Robert. I'll agree with, I'm going to say 90% of it, but I've got a follow-up question. Do you think incumbents are doomed then? Because by definition, they're just, you know, they didn't start digital and therefore they can't understand it. And therefore they're all going to be destroyed at some point. I mean, I get you, humans don't live forever. Plants and animals don't live forever. There's nothing that says that companies need to live forever. But are you saying basically they're fighting a losing battle? No, I'm not saying that at all. But l let me elucidate with a story that comes from my buddy, um, uh, Ray Wong, whose new book is out. We've just had him on the podcast. Everybody wants to rule the world. This, so this is his idea, not mine. So in the mega new category of home food delivery, right, we have DoorDash, who is a purpose-built digital first company. And then we look at the company that digitally transformed incredibly successfully, Domino's. 
Well, as the category gets created, here comes the problem. Domino's has a legendary distribution, digital distribution capability that is built for the smartphone and the cloud from the ground up. Congratulations. And now I can use one app to order anything I want. So I go, so, so the universe gets realigned around a whole new idea. There's a new sun and new planets. And Ray's point is that if Domino's had really been thinking, once they got this right, they would have gone, aha, we just invented the Apple App Store, motherfuckers, and created a platform for all sorts of businesses to get on that. But because they were a pizza company digitally transforming their, the front end of the house, so to speak, they stopped there and they missed, you know, the bigger, a much bigger material impact, uh, new category opportunity. I think that's what I'm trying to underscore using Ray's example. So, you know, the interesting thing about that story is one would argue that DoorDash really understood what the customer need was better than Domino's did. Domino was trying to deliver a pizza and, and DoorDash said, I've got a four-sided platform that can deliver food better. Right. And so that people can buy anything that they want through their phone. And so I, you know, you'd argue that Tony and the team really, maybe because they weren't constrained by the past, could sit back with the question of, you know, if the, you know, there's that old saying, if the world, if all you have is a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And that might have been the Domino's perspective where Tony said, what do, what do customers want, which is to buy any kind of food? Uh, perhaps the, one of the best examples we can see of somebody who did exactly what you said was what Amazon did with AWS, right? They built the system for themselves. And then all of a sudden they said, wait a minute here, we've got a cloud-based system that we could use to serve everybody else. And so that's, I think, transformational thinking and systems level thinking, you know, but, but even a company like Samsung, they figured out that the semiconductor manufacturing process is remarkably similar to the pharmaceutical manufacturing process. And they're now the world's largest manufacturer of generic biologic drugs because they realized the system that they had on the back end for building silicon was actually very, very similar to building pharmaceuticals. And so they've now got this multi tens of billions of dollar year business because somebody said, wait a minute, here I can connect some dots and I can actually apply this to a different industry. And I think great systems thinkers and great systems leaders do that really well. Yes. And on that, we completely agree. <laughs> and it is genius of them. Uh, and the other sort of interesting side note about that and the Amazon example, which is one that I now play with all the time, which is how can we take a cost and turn it into revenue, mm -hmm. right? Because if you look at what Amazon's done, they've taken costs and turned them into revenue. They're now, of course, doing the same thing in the logistics business. And so uh, if you build up a capability that is a breakthrough capability that is world-class, this sort of idea that, well, either A, maybe other people want it, AWS, or B, hmm, from a systems thinking point of view, what are other things that are kind of like this thing that if we applied uh, the breakthrough that we've had to our thing might be applicable to that thing? Uh, you know, some people call that the adjacent possible. I love those discussions. And I think if you're not having those discussions today, I, what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's where you have to see opportunity and kind of, if you will, run towards the disruption on, on what else can be playing offense, which, you know, incumbents historically try not to do. They're trying to defend what they have and disruptors are actually trying to kind of change the world to whatever vision that they're trying to make happen. You know, and we look at companies like Instacart and even what, what Google did with Android, you know, which was you know, about how can you actually try to create a world in, in serving customers better in the way that you 
you know, that, that meets your goals and objectives as an organization. Um, and, and when that happens, like it's a lot of fun, it's much more fun to, to be the person who drives the disruption than to have the disruption happen to you. Well, that's what I think, but I'm not sure everybody agrees with us, but you and I absolutely <laughs> agree on that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 much, it's much better to be winning than to losing, right? I mean, we can say what we want about it, but it's much better to, to like, uh, nobody wants to go to work every day and be losing. Like that sucks. Uh, I sure don't. Now, Robert, uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, this has been a great conversation and I appreciate very much uh, you're, you're pushing back on, on a lot of the uh, uh, things that, that we talked about and trying to get to a level of precision. It's, it's been a great conversation. Well, thank you, Robert. And I want you to know, I deeply appreciate your book. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm not interested in people that I always agree with on everything. I'm interested in people who are willing to have a thoughtful dialogue. And the, the, to me, the, the big value in your book is you propose some research, you have some specific insights and some models, some frameworks, if you will, on thinking about what is this mix going forward? Because yes, human beings are still analog beings, and <laughs> at least for the next little while, we still will be. And so I think you sort of pushing the thinking and the debate, and that's why I appreciate the debate with you, because I think this is a debate we should all be having and probably be having around digital and analog for a very long time. And so I appreciate you being on the front end of that discussion. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day and uh, uh, look forward to hopefully more discussions in the future and more debates. Yes. Thank you, brother. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. All right. There he is, Robert Siegel. His new book is out. It's called The Brains and Brawn Company. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. And uh, thank you so much, Robert, for your time. It was a great conversation. And if you know somebody who would love this conversation, why not uh, share it with them right now? If you're uh, listening to us on Spotify or Apple or on virtually any other podcast player, it has a share feature. And you can press that button right now and share it with somebody that you love. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Malibu Milk, uh, the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y. And on checkout, type in different 15 for your 15% discount on your first order of Malibu Milk. It's the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check it out. OneLifeFullyLive.org also want to let you know your spouse called and uh, he said it's okay you can subscribe to category pirates my friends at bottleneck.online are the distant assistants that you're looking for if you are interested in a real person who is enabled by technology who is nowhere near you and will never get anywhere near you check out bottleneck.online they've been distancing physically distancing before that was even a thing my friends at uh, play bigger advisors will help you design and dominate your category and um, they have a very cool uh, new playbook out. So check out playbigger.com today. And my friends at Rapid Media will help you do legendary marketing, media, and communications in Australia. And they have a powerful new piece of software that will help you optimize your media investments to produce legendary results. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. That's rapidmedia.com.au. All right, I need to pr uh, tell you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. <laughs> all rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. And also, I can't tell you what, but Jason's working on some really great new stuff, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. 
Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Clearly, this podcast goes way better uh, with libations. Joan Jett was right. Please don't forget to tell two people you love about two podcasts you live. Two, <laughs> two people you love about two podcasts you love because spreading podcasts is way better than spreading uh, viruses. Today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. And remember, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. And if you're interested in the impact of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes on startups, entrepreneurs, marketing, and Silicon Valley, check out Lockhead on Marketing for our latest episode on exactly that. All right. Until we're together again, please stay sedient. Stay You know, Lockhead, if you're going to have a podcast, you should learn how to talk. Stay legendary. Stay healthy. Take good care of each other. And, of course, follow your different. <laughs>